I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. What's the best way to fish like a local? What if you could book a trip with an experienced local guide with the click of a button? Now you can with Fishing Booker. Now anyone can access enjoyable fishing experiences anywhere. Take the legwork out of setting up that trip and explore more than 30,000 fishing experiences at your fingertips. Just go to fishingbooker.com to get started and book your trip with a local guide. That's fishingbooker.com. Fishing Booker. Fish like a local. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your guide to the whitetail woods. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel for the stand, saddle, or blind. First Light, go farther, stay longer. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your guest host, Tony Peterson. And today, I'm speaking to the hunting public's Aaron Warbritton. All right, everybody, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. You guessed it, this is not Mark Kenyon's voice. It's the old second stringer, Tony. Mark is off recovering from a surgery that I guess doesn't sound too serious. Apparently, he got a Brazilian butt lift so that he can fit into his saddle a little bit better and be a little bit more comfortable on those all-day sits this fall. So, I don't know, feel free to wish him a speedy recovery or whatever. Today, I have the one and only Aaron Warbritton on. Aaron is most well known for being the glue that holds the hunting public together, but he also happens to be an absolute whitetail slayer. Today, we're talking about the sign you should look for while winter scouting and about the sign that probably won't do you much good, even though it looks like it should. This is a really informative episode, and I think you're going to love it. And as always, thank you so much for tuning in. Warb, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing. I'm I'm pretty good. I'm cold, but I think that comes with just being in the midst, midst of winter. But you know all about that. I so. know all about it, buddy. This this winter <laughs> has been a long, long winter, and it makes me, uh, you know, you know. I don't know how this happens. You never know when you're getting old, but you start to have these little reminders. And I always thought, like, you know, growing up, you'd hear about somebody who was a snowbird. And I was like, that's so weird. Like, you just go spend the winter in Arizona or Florida. And now I'm at the point where I'm like, how the hell can I make that happen? Because <laughs> being up here, you know, locked in this Arctic shit for five months, it's a lot. But it gives us a few opportunities with the deer, which isn't so bad, I guess. Yeah, that's right. I'm in the same boat. I, 10, 12 years ago, I was the young buck that, you know, nothing 
I no, there was no mountain too big, you know. But now it's like four or five days in the tent somewhere, freezing my butt off. It's like, man, I need to really go somewhere to get some legitimate sleep for a day or two and recharge my batteries. Yeah, I hear it. Part, part of your problem is probably having to manage that entire uh, THP crew there and kind of be the mother hen of the whole thing, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We got we got quite the litany of personalities amongst our group. Do you we just had uh, that call this morning? And like, there's just so much so much diversity within our group and so many different perspectives. It keeps you on your toes, though. Yeah, you guys have. I mean, you've done such a good job with that and you just expanded so much. But what's it like just with the, you know, the content production that you guys have going on? You have to kind of feel like you're always like one step ahead of the combine and it's just running you down the whole time. Yeah, it always it's always like that through the season nonstop. This last year, we kind of trimmed back the amount of videos that we put out and we tried to do like a better job with them as far as the production goes. But in the, they did pretty well, and I think the viewers the viewers liked them. But I think they liked our our old style more, where we were just doing stuff, you know, as we went. This last year, we gave ourselves like three or four days to get a video out, so that gave us more time to kind of relax and and work on the video. You know, maybe instead of editing six hours every night, you're only editing a couple hours, and then eventually getting it done. But I think we're going to go back to. I don't know if that's for better or worse. It's definitely for worse on us <laughs> to go back to editing videos every night. But um, people definitely seem to like that. They, they seem to get more value out of that from our, at least our audience does. So I think that's what we're going to go back to. But it, to answer your question, a long-winded fashion is it's pretty trying. I lose, I still lose 10 to 15 pounds every spring and every fall. Yeah. Like it gets around Christmas and, my face starts sinking in. My mom's texting me every other day, like, are you alive? Are you going to make it? <laughs> like, yeah, I'm fine. It's, it's a heavy lift, man. And, and it might not be directly <laughs> relatable to a lot of the audience. When you say you gave yourself three or four days or you gave, you know, the crew three or four days to put out a video, uh, you know, editing wise, and anybody who's ever edited a long form video knows that that's not very much time still. So no, when you, when you not. crunch that down, that's a, that's a uh, stress filled uh, situation over and over and over again. Yeah. Especially when you're thinking about the hunt and like just being on the road on one of these hunts, you know, it's like 50% of your time is just surviving yep. or 50% of your focus is just like, what food do I have to eat today? Where am I going to sleep where it's dry? Do I have all my equipment in order? Do I have all my gear in order? What's the weather going to do tomorrow? How, you know, where am I going to hunt? All these things are going through your mind. And that is literally a full lift for somebody just on its own. And then you introduce like every night you've got to catalog this footage and then sit in the truck and, you know, edit it and then find a way to get enough Wi-Fi to upload it somewhere, either via through your smartphone or a Starbucks that's 30 miles away. Like there's just a, there's a, it's a lot, but that's, that's why there's, there's no way we could do it without our group. For I sure. mean, everybody has to wear a number of different hats and to get the job done. Yeah, I, I think what you said time. there, um, uh, the, the logistics of a, of it, just one out of state hunt. Like, I think that's, that's the, the sort of piece of the puzzle we <laughs> haven't really discussed a lot when we talk about hunt planning and doing you know, doing these over the road hunts and selling this idea that you should go try to shoot a deer over state line somewhere. 
is just the amount of thinking you have to do. Not only like we kind of boil it down like, oh, e-scout, find your spot, get in there, you know, burn through there, be mobile, hunt. And it's it's tied around that stuff, but it's not tied around like nearly as tightly like where are you going to stay and like what what food are you going to have and how good of a sleep you know per night are you going to get like all of these things you know if you get a flat tire how do you get it like can you change it like where, where do you go for that exactly There's, like do you have jumper cables in your car that's yeah. the most basic thing ever but if you go out there and you're in the middle of nowhere and you know your car dies or whatever what are you going to do like how are you going to figure that out and in some of the places we go you're not allowed to camp yep. and you know, the nearest place where you can camp may be 30 miles away. So you have to deal with all that before and during your hunt. And it takes an enormous amount of time. I mean, yeah, the, on a five, six day hunt, the first day or two is spent dealing with that stuff. Yeah. Half the time. Well, then, and like you said, I mean, I, I was bitching to my wife about this at the end of this season. Cause you know, I, I'm sure you guys do this too, where you go through a whole season you know, you, you hunt quite a bit and you're like, can I just get the right weather like for three days in a row? It's like, it always feels like <laughs> you're just fighting the weather and it's, you know, 75 degrees, you know, November 5th. And you're like, what the hell? And then, a, you know, a rainstorm comes in for three days and you're like, can I just, you know, like when we, when we plan these hunts and we start thinking about them, we're like, okay, I'm going into this spot or I'm going to hunt this chunk of public it's it's really easy to just kind of ignore the fact that mother nature is going to throw something at you that sucks and you know you kind of like factor it in so if it's an early season hunt you're like okay i'm going to be around some water you're going to you think about it a little bit but so often you know like 50 60 70 percent of your hunts in the fall you get weather that is like actively working against you like it's not even like a net neutral or a positive it's like it's it's trying to make it rough for you. And it's like almost impossible to factor that in when you're planning. So you have to cover that other stuff, like the logistics of where you're going to stay and how you're going to eat and where, how you're going to get there and all that stuff. Because you know, if you do it enough, there's all these things you haven't thought about that are coming in that are going to kick your ass in some little way and just make it tougher. (laughs) Oh yeah. That water. I mean, it's the most basic thing ever, but if you're staying somewhere and you're, and you're trying to be as efficient as possible, and spend as much time hunting as possible, you got to have a way to have water. And if you don't have, like, if you don't have the means to have it while you're there and have enough of it stored in your vehicle, then you got to have a way to get more of it in some way. So there, yeah, all those little details, survival, survivaling is what Zinger calls it. But (laughs) all those little details are like overlooked by a lot of people that are just getting into this. It's like, holy crap, what am I going to do? Yeah. Once they get there. I was, uh, when I was, elk hunting earlier you know elk hunting the beginning of september this year my you know my buddy that i'm hunting with he's from colorado and he's he's so good in the mountains and you know i'm this idiot that comes from minnesota and we'll, we you know we were kind of doing some stuff where we'd go in and look at a spot or go in to spend a day in a spot and just try it out in different areas and i'd be like why don't we just bivy in here and you know if we're gonna if we're gonna do the the heavy lift of getting in there why don't we stay for a couple days and like 27 times that week he's like there's no water dude we don't have any water so we can't well, like we can't just go in there and get it and i always forget that you know like you you just sort of take it for granted like you think oh i'm just gonna i'm gonna hike in here and it's like well water's heavy and if you can't filter it what are you gonna do and it's it's not so simple i mean that's that's kind of a western thing but like you're talking it can be a a whitetail concern too oh yeah if you're away from in a gas station or town or whatever what are you gonna do I mean, sometimes we're able to filter it if we can camp. Like we did that in Georgia a few years ago when we were um, hunting down there for deer. 
we just camped next to a stream and then we filtered with our Sawyer like bag filters. We just yep. fill that thing up every night and then we'd wake up in the morning and our jugs would be full where we would filter it out. But we didn't figure that out until we got there. Like we got there and we found this cool campsite and then we're like, okay, where, what are we going to do for water? We have some obviously in the truck, but yeah, I mean, there's all those things that, that you just don't think about very often. You're staring at the map trying to figure out where a deer's going to be or where people are going to be so you can avoid them. And then you get there and then all of those other things are thrown in. And then on top of that, we're also trying to, you know, have our computers plugged in the generator so that they don't <laughs> die and all of that. It's yeah, it's an ordeal out there. The traveling rodeo. Always. Yeah. I think that if you're listening to this, you should, and, and you're planning a, you know, an out of state hunt or you've, you've gone on one and maybe it didn't go the way you, you thought it would take some solace in the fact that Aaron Warbritton and his crew have been on, been to 7,000 different States over <laughs> the last 10 years. And you guys have hunted everywhere, done everything. And you still don't have a system that just always works everywhere. It's just, no matter what you do, you're going to be dealing with that stuff. Oh yeah. Always going to be hurdles. Always. So I, I wonder, I, I always wonder with you guys, and that's, that's what I want to talk to you about on this podcast is how, how hard it is to maintain that balance of, you know, you, you have a business aspect to it and a content production aspect that the, the listener doesn't, the average person doesn't. So that's, that's kind of out the window for this conversation, but knowing that you have that and you're going to hit a bunch of different States and, you know, Jake's got a tag here, Ted's got a tag here, whatever. How is it, how easy is it or hard is it for you to keep a balance of like thinking about what the deer should be doing while you're managing, like juggling all the logistics of the, that life outside of just like the mission focus of killing a deer? Because that's what most people, when they go out there, they're like, that's my concern. They don't have the other things that you're worried about necessarily, but they have that like, how do I find the deer? And like, how do you balance that? Because you have all that other stuff going on. Whoever's got the tag, we more we try to let them worry about only that. So we try to help whoever has the tag uh, as much as we can. And I mean just from the standpoint of make sure that they have all the gear that they need for a day to get to go out and go hunting. Make sure they got food. Make sure they got water. All that stuff that we just talked about. Make sure that all of those other things are buttoned down. Like uh, when we're in Arkansas, for example. Nick was cooking every night. So as soon as he would get done filming or hunting or whatever it is that he was doing, he'd come back to camp and he'd start cooking food and he'd cook enough food for everybody there. And then I had a tag, but Greg was filming me. So Greg's priority is just filming and capturing footage. And I, my priority is trying to figure out how to kill the deer. So you guys you have know, your roles and you just, yeah, we have our different roles and then we go to the next place and then we switch. And, you know, I'm filming and editing or whatever it is. And that's kind of how we, we roll. We usually end up with groups of like three, four guys when we go somewhere. And we may only have one tag or two tags. Yeah. Um, but the, everybody's got their role is in camp so that all of those <clears throat> things are taken care of. Yeah. Because I've had to do that where you're juggling <laughs> 10 different things and it never ends well. It's yeah. just like never well, and I mean, that's kind of a, that's the situation, you know, I've, I've talked about quite a bit where it's amazing, you know, when you, when you do enough hunts over the road where you, you know, you take a buddy along and their wife calls and she's pissed off before you even get there and you see how it changes, 
changes the dynamic, changes the mission, and it's never for the better. Or, you know, like we talked nope. about, something goes wrong, you know, you get a, the second flat tire in three days, and you got to deal <clears> with that, and you got a half a day into town to Wally World to get it changed or whatever. And it, you see how quickly just things can just sort of suck away the the focus. And man, it just makes it that much harder to be successful out there. So you guys have kind of just morphed into understanding who has, you know, A, B, C, D role on the hunt. You stick to it and everybody, once everybody has that kind of defined role, it's like, okay, now all these pieces are working together and not taken away from the other one. And you can just keep going and killing deer. Yeah, that's essentially how we do it. Oh, that's interesting. I think, I think it would be really easy uh, for a lot of people to assume, you know, with a guy like you and, and, and all the content you guys produce in the fall and all the travel and time away from home and everything that when it hits, you know, January, February, March, like we're at now, you're probably like, I don't want to be in the woods. I don't want to think about deer. I don't want to have to deal with this, but you're actually really into winter scouting. We were talking about this before the podcast and you kind of view it as, sort of a, almost a relief from not having to hunt and getting to answer some questions for yourself. Oh yeah. All the mistakes that you make throughout the fall, because, um, my buddy Joe Elzinger puts it a real good way. Um, he basically said bow hunting is like you get one or two guesses right all year. So when you're hunting, you, you're going to guess like 40 or 50 times if you hunt that many times in a given year. And if you guess right one time, you're going to end up with potentially a filled tag. And that's kind of what you're doing all fall is you're just, you're going in there and you're making mistake after mistake after mistake. Now, before you go into those individual hunts, you think you got to think to yourself and have the confidence. Like I'm going into this bedding area, this big buck's bedded right here. And he's going to come out on this trail. But you know, 95% of the time it doesn't work like that. I would say like 99.6% of the time. Yes. I mean, you blow him out of there. He's not there. He comes in from a different direction that you weren't expecting. Your wind switches. I mean, we could go on for weeks with things that happen. But essentially, that's what you're doing in postseason right now. Or that's what I like to do is like go back and solve for all the mistakes that I made throughout the fall. So go in, for example, I was hunting a really big one last fall for like a week and a half where I had pictures of him in an area that was new to me. I had scouted it before a little bit, but I haven't scouted the whole piece. And he was coming out of this set of ridges that I'd never been into before. And I didn't want to just dive right in there and blow him out because I was getting him on two or three cameras. that are pretty regular. And like, I got a chance at him before the pressure really hits here in the rut. Cause this was a late October hunt. What, what state Iowa. was this Aaron? It was, it was at Iowa. Oh, okay. Yeah. In Iowa where we're at, the pressure really ramps up early November and I was getting this buck mid October into the late October. I'm like, and I was getting pictures of him on an access path. Like I had, I had a camera set up there to monitor people and deer over a scrape, but I did not expect to get any deer during daylight on this thing. I figured I might get a big buck or two, but I figured it was going to be a two in the morning, but this thing starts showing up right on the edge of daylight. And a couple of times during daylight walking this trail and I didn't get any pictures of people for like two weeks down this thing. And I, it was like unbelievable. I was getting pictures texted, you know, to my phone on this cell camera. And I had no, I would just assume that there was going to be people in there all the time. And I knew there would be come November because that's when the floodgates open. Yep. Everybody saves their week long vacation hunts first week in November happens every year. 
So I knew I had to kill this thing really quick. Well, if I was to kill him anyway, I got in there and I tried to be as aggressive as I could without bumping him out of the area, but I was unfamiliar with it. And I, I never saw him. I hunted in there like 10 different times over the course of a few weeks, never saw the buck. So now getting back to it, it's postseason. I want to go in there and figure out where in the heck he was coming from and what he was doing. And I can kind of solve for some of those equations that were left unanswered right now. I might not be able to figure everything out, but I might be, I can go in there with a clear mind now, just blow the whole thing up, dive into those ridges and figure out everything that went on last fall. Because you can't do that in the fall or you risk blowing him out, you know, and then having to start over. <coughs> what do you, what would you say to somebody who would be like, I have watched Zach Farrenbell run across uh, much of the Midwest yeah. <laughs> and seem to seem to go through everything. Cause that's the way you're talking seems like a much different style than the way he would go about it. Uh, sometimes we both hunt, we both hunt similarly, actually. It just depends on the situation. Like mm -hmm. if I'm going in somewhere where I have no Intel whatsoever, I'm going to get the wind in my face and be super aggressive. And I might even plow right through bedding areas because I'm searching for a buck to hunt or I'm searching for a good spot and you keep the wind in your face because if you bump one with the wind in your face and he doesn't smell you, there's a better chance that he's not going to react as, as negatively as he would if he did smell you. Yep. But so in, in this situation, I had Intel telling me there was a big buck in there and he was really close to that spot. So I didn't, you know, I didn't go in there completely blind and I wasn't as aggressive as I would have other, as I would have been otherwise. Now for better or worse, that's just how it worked out. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it do its job. Now, you probably know someone who's used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were onto something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. 
And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. Lately, I've been telling you guys about Land.com, the site that can help you find that little patch of ground to call your own where you can do all the hunting, fishing, and hanging out with family you want. Land can be a great investment. Getting your own piece of land is something that can both generate income over time and also generate a lot of memories for generations to come. It's an investment you get to use and enjoy and take care of while it works for you. And any good investor will tell you to start investing sooner than later. Well, they've got hundreds of thousands of rural listings from all across America. Land.com can help you find properties for hunting, fishing, a lake house, a hobby farm, or if you just want to start a rental business slash family compound as a way to better secure future generations. Land.com will also help connect you with the right agent that specializes in rural real estate. So enough dreaming about it. Land.com is the place to find and invest in your open space. I'm glad you explained that because I think it's easy to look at you guys kind of like it's always just foot on the gas, but it's foot on the gas in specific situations till there's a good reason to pump the brakes. And right. then, you know, and that that's something it's so hard to sort of convey <laughs> that message. A lot of times when you talk about like a kind of an aggressive mobile strategy is like that, that's a great strategy in some situations. If you know how to rein it in or use it. Like, so it's not just a, like this cavalier thing where you're like, I don't care if I blow them out because they're going to come back. But like, it's not, it's not so simple. Like there's a, there's a give and take there where you're like, I, I know I need to know more now. And as soon as I start learning just enough, then it's time to just back off and go, now I play it safe and figure out what's, what's going on here. Oh yeah, definitely. We bump and dumped a few of them over the years, but every time it's, it's under very specific scenarios like that. I mean, you'll even see us when we're, when we're hunting out West, um, and we're being super aggressive and trying to get in the bed with them. We're glassing from a high knob or something early in the morning. We're trying to spot them first and then get that little piece of Intel and then boom, go in there and strike. Um, <laughs> it just is so situational. Yeah. I mean, well, spooking, sure. a deer, spooking a buck in the rut that's locked down with a doe is much different than spooking a buck in early October and he smells you and say you're hunting a bedding area that's at the corner of public. And you walk into that bedding area and blow him out, and he goes on to the on the private next door. He may not visit that bedding area again for a few weeks. Conversely, or in a different example, if you got four thousand acres of timber and there's a couple really solid spots in the middle of it, you got more room for error because yeah. if you bump them out of there, they may only go three four hundred yards before they reset, and that may still be on property you can hunt on. So. Yep. It all depends on the situation you're dealing with. Well, yeah, and I think I think it's really easy, especially if you hunt public land, to just kind of convince yourself, if I jump him, this program's over for a while. But, man, there's so many times where, like you said, depends how the wind's going. Like, what <coughs> kind of a bump was it? Like, you know, right. like, what, what happened? You know, it, it's so different kind of trucking through there looking for some sign and seeing a white flag go off in the distance on the other end of the clearing or something versus, you know, climbing up in that tree and looking over and he's watching you set it up and now he takes off. Or, yeah. you know, what, there's like, I, I've started, you know, I grew up thinking, you know, if they saw you, you're done. If you jumped them, you're done. Like they snort, you're never going to see anything. And the more you hunt, you realize like, man, it's not so simple. Like sometimes you jump a big one and you think it's over and you set up and he comes back like 45 minutes later and you're on public land and you're like, this is like, this should not happen. 
And then sometimes you don't see them again for three weeks or you, they are truly gone. And it's, it, there's so much to it. But what, I want to go back to something you said with, you know, Joe's advice on, you know, you might, you might make two good guesses right out of 50 in a season. And that it, that's like almost universally true for, unless you have like a really banging spot to hunt, that's kind of a different kind of deal. But for most people, I, I believe that. Like I, I think that the best hunters have just figured out how to get comfortable with what they got wrong. And they've figured out these things like we're talking about with the, the winter scouting where you're like, I'm not happy with that, with only two. I want three or four. Cause if I do three or four, you know, that might be three or four encounters and I might kill two, you know, cause if, if you get two, right, you might have those two encounters. You might have buck fever on one. He might, you know, wh- whatever, but you know, yeah. At it, that point when you're bow hunting, I mean, there's a lot of luck involved once it gets to that point. It's like just getting the opportunity though. If you can get yourself in those positions, you will eventually start killing more of them. Yeah. I mean, it's, just, um, it's an encounter so skill. That, yeah. I mean, you just don't, I mean, I hunted, 40 some times with a bow in Iowa. And most people are like, Oh yeah. You know, you go to Iowa for a week in the rut and you're going to shoot a 150 on public lands. Like, man, I, maybe you, but not me. <laughs> um, not, not this year at least. Um, some years it does work that way, but this year I just, I had three or four bucks that I knew about that were really either there. There was one of them that was really old that I was trying to kill. And then there was a couple more that were really big antlered bucks. Yep. And I just kind of played them close to my vest and tried to hunt those deer for a large percentage of the fall. And I regret doing that. Um, honestly, I wish I would have done way more stuff like we were just talking about, where you just go in blind to an area into the wind and you kind of figure it out as you go. I seem to do, I seem to almost do better as far as filling tags doing that than Me I too. do sitting back and watching cameras and things like that. Like trail cameras will totally screw your brain up at times if you put too much in information or in if you infer too much from that information yeah, um I, but these deer there was one on that was really really big and it's like man i i got a couple pictures of him i didn't think nothing of it and then he showed up on daylight in in daylight on that camera it's like man he's right there he's living there close by you don't get an opportunity to hunt one that is this big very often on public so I just threw a, a bunch of hunts at him and never did any good. I, if I could go back and redo things, I would have been more aggressive. Yeah. But he was showing up on these cameras. So it's like, you're, you, you know, what decision do you make? Do you sit right there where the camera's at or pretty close by where he's going to, where he's coming by there occasionally? It's safe. You can get in and out of there. Or do you push in even further? And I did a little bit of both uh, with no success. But that's why I want to go back in there right now is to kind of figure out what I screwed up or what I did wrong or where he potentially could have been, because I'm assuming I'll learn a bunch of things and see a bunch of mistakes that I made. Yeah, that the way you're talking is exactly how I feel. If I want to have a, a, a unenjoyable season, just show me a picture of a really big buck where I'm hunting. Cause I don't, it, I, I start to second guess and I, <laughs> I feel like it sort of just takes me out of that like day to day rhythm of what did you see? What sign did you bump into? Like what, what's, what's going on right now? And it, I, for me, I, I know some people are really good at that. That is not my style either. And I, I look at this, like, like you're talking about when you find that situation, you know, you look at it and go, okay, you had this giant, 
you had some intel on him, you know, going down this trail you didn't expect, doing a few things. Maybe you weren't like, you're like, maybe he shouldn't be doing that, but he is. So what now? But you go in there and what you learn from that or what you will with this winter scouting, that'll feed so much of your hunting beyond the interest in that buck, whether he's still there or not or whatever. And that's, I learned that years ago on some public land by my house in the Twin Cities where I found a giant shed. My dog actually found it. And it changed the course of like a couple years of my life. Cause this was like a booner on public land by my house in the Twin Cities, you know, like a situation where you're like rare. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I I actually found that buck the first time I went into glass where I thought he was gonna be, and there he was, and there was two other good ones with him, and I was like, Oh my God. And it dude, I hunted for 30 days straight for that deer, and you know, I left one day because I had to go to a funeral. <laughs> And I was like, it got to the point where I was like, I don't, I'm not enjoying it. I ended up killing yeah. the, the, the smallest buck that was in the trio, which was still a good one. He was the one that stuck around. I don't, I think he was the only one who didn't go live in somebody's backyard. Cause there's some subdivisions and stuff there. But what it made me do is I winter scouted the crap out of that area. There was cattail sloughs and stuff. And I just found some spots where it's like, okay, I'm never going to kill that booner probably. I thought I had a chance, didn't work out. But what it did is it put me on some spots that other bucks used for, for years and just showed me like, okay, that special deer was there and he was doing that thing. And that wasn't an accident. And other deer are kind of satellite around him and doing similar things. And it just makes you look at that off-season process differently. And even though maybe that deer's the motivation, what you're out there finding is just like, I'm just learning about the bucks here and what they like to do year to year. And that's so valuable. Well, right now you have no foliage on. Yep. Um, which is a tremendous asset. If it's cold enough, things are frozen. So you can get to places a lot quicker than you could have otherwise. And on top of that, you're basically looking at a chessboard after the game has been played. And you're able to look at all these moves that were made by you and them in a sense. And then assess what what went wrong. So I go in there, and I think a lot of people get tripped up when we get to talking about hunting beds. They go in there postseason and they find some beds with hair in them, and they're like, "Okay, I got to hunt right here over this bed." Like, no, don't think about it that way because deer in March and February may be in completely different spots than they were in October and November. Like they may be using that area for a different reason. Now that's good that you found the sign, but think about why it's there. And what else is going on in their environment during that time? But I, what I really get pumped up about is finding scrapes from last fall, finding rubs from last fall. You can even look at like some rubs, you can tell what time of the fall they were laid down. Like you may find a group of rubs that is starting to get, a, they look older. Like they just are, they're kind of cresting over. They're losing that color, that brighter color. And you may be able to infer that those were left when the velvet was coming off in September from a bachelor group, you know, that was feeding on an oak flat or whatever. But then you may find other rubs that are fresher that came towards the back half of the rut. That deer's doing something entirely different than the other deer that were leaving those rubs there. <laughs> and the, the biggest thing is, and we talked about this before the podcast, is I want to get into the middle of those thick, nasty, gnarly bedding areas. And I want to scout every trail in and out of them. I want to find the beds that are in there because those are the areas, a lot of times those really thick bedding areas. And some, some are not that thick. I mean, it's situational once again. But some of those bedding areas they will use during different times of the year. They may or may not be there right now. Yep. But 
it may be a situation where if oaks drop and there's a bunch of white oak acorns in there in early October, they may be, you know, socked in there during October in bow season. Yep. So you always have to kind of be thinking ahead and behind on like how the deer are using the landscape as so much is changing because that's always, I feel like that's where I always get tripped up and where so many people do is they don't realize in the whitetails world, things are changing every single week. Not just throughout the fall, but also throughout the winter and even the summer at times. But if you can find some commonalities in the secure areas that they're using to live in, then you can take some of that information directly from March scouting and tie it into what you find. Like you were talking about finding that shed. If you find a shed or a deadhead or something like that, especially if you scout that area multiple years and you find big dead bucks in there over and over again, there's something secure about that area. And those bucks are choosing to go there to die. Yep. And you'll find that the more you track deer that people hit in the fall and that they, you know, hit marginally, it's like they will go to their most secure location where they feel the safest and they will give away a lot of their cards right there in those moves when they do that. So you can, (laughs) you're looking for all those little bitty clues to kind of tie together, but you can learn so much, especially with that foliage being off, man, that's, I scout a lot in the summer because that's the time when I have available as well. Um, a lot of times we scout in February and January and then the first of March, but then, you know, we leave to go turkey hunt. Um, so we pick up our scouting again in the summer, but it is so much harder in the summer to find last fall sign Yep, because it's just green and full of ticks and hotter than hell. So, yeah, you, I mean, I, I kind of look at it like my winter scouting is the time for me to learn the land first and the deer second. Yeah. The summer, I'm learning deer. What they're what are they doing now that I can play into like on an opening week or whatever type of strategy? And then the land second. And I'll tell you what, man, like we, when you said that about when you go out, you know, you walk out there in March and you look at rubs and you find a, you know, a giant uh, you know, signpost type rub that's <laughs> got a ton of shavings, you know, still kind of hanging off of it. And you're like, that that's like November 1st or Halloween, you know, like that big bastard, he, he spent some time on it and you're like, that's great. But when you find those, that concentration of rubs in a different spot, maybe out a little closer toward the fields or something. And it's like, okay, those are a little older and they're not as big. And, you know, people look at that and go, not as cool, right? Like not as important. And to me, like you were talking about in Iowa, when you get out there in October before the the masses get out there, I, I look at that stuff and I go, if I can find early rubs, Man, oh, yeah. I, oh, dude, I will take that. Like when I drew the last time I drew Iowa was 2020, and you know I hunted opener and then the middle weekend of October because um, I had to go film some stuff in November, and I found three spots with some concentrations of early rubs. It, it wasn't like blow you away sign, but you're like, you know, like they're they're staging here, they're moving around a little bit. There were good bucks in every spot, and it wasn't like the kind of sign that would just blow you away, but it was like. They're using this enough. You better get eyes on this area. And every one of them had big deer on public land. And it's the timing where I did the same thing. I'm like, I know there's going to be tons of people out. If I don't, if I don't, you know, if I get, if I have to come back in mid-November because I haven't filled my tag, I know I'm going to be dealing with a ton of people. It's a different situation, but you find that kind of stuff. That's an advantage you have over the competition that winter scouting gives you in a way that like, I think a lot of people kind of overlook it. Yeah, and if you know the land, man, that's just so key. That's such a huge deal. Just to know the little subtleties in the terrain, even. 
it's like it where where that big buck is is laid up when I'm getting pictures of him on that camera, I'm pretty sure it's on one of three secondary points ridges that come out. And I did not know how that lays through there. So in the wintertime, when you can go in there with no leaf cover, if you can find ways to hide from that bedding area right now, because you're not only scouting for deer sign, you're also thinking about like how to get in and out of these places without boogering deer. And if you can come up with a plan to get in and out of those areas right now when there's no leaf cover on early October, you're you're set because you got way more cover during that time. Because that's I mean, we talk about this a lot. You're always trying to get close enough to kill them during the day. Because if you're sitting back too far, they're getting to that. They're leaving a bunch of that sign there, but they're not getting there till 9, 10 p.m. Yep. And you're out of the game. You're just leaving your scent there for him to figure you out. So we're always trying to get close. You're always trying to get close. And that is, man, when you know the lay of the land, you just have a card that a lot of other people don't have to play, especially if it's a bunch of non-residents coming in in early November that haven't spent a bunch of time scouting boots on the ground. Like they don't, they don't know all of those little subtleties in there. They may not know where that little ditch depression is that only drops you two feet but it drops you just enough to get out of sight from bedded deer that are hundred yards away. Yep. Yeah. It's so important. And, and like that, that big one that you're talking about on uh, in Iowa that you were hunting last year, when you think about a deer like that, getting a, getting a picture of that deer on an access trail is something just about any, any like even halfway competent hunter could come by, you know, like that's, that's not high level stuff, right? Like that's no. low level. But if you go out and winter scout now and you find a couple rub lines pointed in that direction or pointed away from that direction. And then you find those secondary points, you go up there, maybe find a big bed here or there. Now, if that big one's using that next year or somebody takes his spot cause he's out cause he got killed or whatever. Now, you know, like, okay, if, if the average guy gets a picture of that buck on the trail, he's set up over that access trail, right? You're doing exactly what I did this year. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But, but if you, you're the only one that knows that, that Intel that you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if you go out and winter scout that and backtrack that a little bit, now you go, okay, if somebody else gets on this or that deer, let's say that deer is getting there 10 minutes before shooting light ends two times a week or something. And you go, okay, I could kill him on this scrape on this access trail, but where's he more killable? 150 yards back there on that, like close, like somewhere between where his bed is and where that is. And you'll be, you'll be in a different position than most hunters already because of one or two or three winter scouting sessions where you go in there and you go, oh, the sign kind of shows me this, the rub show me this, and I know he was there a few times. That's the kind of stuff I look at and I go, okay, instead of getting those questions right twice a season, now you might get it three or four just from that. Oh, exactly. That And that, man, that is an ace in the hole because you've got lots of those little areas across the landscape and everybody and their dog knows where that access path is. It's the easiest way to get in and out of there. I mean, so whenever people show up, that's exactly, that's where they're going to go. It's very predictable. But you have all of these other areas around there that are, that are pretty tight and small. And people don't even think about diving in down this ridge. It just, there's 15 ridges that all look the same all the way down through there. And there's two or three of them that have points that drop off into this little bottom that are thick, but you can't really see it from an aerial photo. They're thick enough to hold a, a couple of deer. And that's it. But if you've done that scouting and if you go in there during March, you can see that right now. Yep. Whereas 
if you're going in there completely blind in the fall, that is really difficult to see without just blowing the whole area out, which is what I should have done. I should have. I wish that I would have never had the camera there because I feel like I would have had a better chance of killing him because I would have went in there uh, like we talked about earlier. I would have went in there and went straight to those bedding areas with the wind in my face. And I would have risked bumping them out of there to get the intel that I needed to know where to hunt. Yep. Instead, I kind of, instead, I just stage hunted in there and I, I felt like I was getting closer, but then the pressure hit and gone. He's yep. gone. As soon as people start going up and down that path, no more. Yep. But I, I think that you'd probably see with that buck, at least maybe in the October time frame. Where if you if you could have got in there and figured him out a little bit better, he might have not been that far away from that access trail, and he might have he might have known everybody who was walking in there. Like, because yep. you see that I I saw that this year. Um, I hunted some public land in southwestern Minnesota. That you know I'd been pheasant hunting. This was my first time deer hunting it, and there was a spot, this river bottom spot. I was real curious in. I went in and kind of speed scouted it a couple times, and didn't i didn't fall in love with it it was okay but i ended up jumping a big deer right by the parking area on my way back one day so i had walked out by him one through one area came back and i must have made him nervous and got upwind of him or something and he took off and in my head i was like there was there's a lesson there like you know but i had three days to work with i had other stuff so i didn't hunt it and then I went back there right after the Minnesota gun season ended. I went pheasant hunting in there. And the first thing we did is pulled into that access area. My buddy pointed over in the woods. He goes, look at that. And there was like a 125, 130 standing there in the woods right off of there. And I don't know if it's the same deer or not, but where he was was same area. 40 yards away from where I jumped that deer out of a brush pile. And I'm going, man, there's a river there. There's, there's ways to get out. Like if you want to know if somebody's in there with you, you could be there embedded and you can make the decision to lay there tight like you did the first time and let you walk by. Or if, you know, seven guys get out of their trucks to make a drive, he can bail across the, the river into private land. And the advantage is like so distinct when you start figuring it out. And I went, I bet I should have probably been there and I should have figured out a way to park way down the road and sneak in there and catch that dude off guard when he came back through the river. And I just... You see stuff like that, and I'm actually I'm gonna head back down there in just a little bit and look around because it's kind of haunting me knowing that we we jumped another good buck in there in this in the willows, you know maybe a quarter of a mile away, and I go that's two big deer after the Minnesota gun season on public land, and I just missed it during bow season, but I think like you're talking about with a winter scouting session in there, everything's frozen. I can get everywhere I want to. And I, I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to answer one of those questions. Like there's, I'm going to get a little bit of Intel that's going to feed into next season. You're always just building. You're just building and building and building to try to increase your odds. Yep. I mean, that's all it is. Like that's all it basically boils down to is you're just learning these little bitty tidbits here and there and everywhere. And then eventually they lead to, you shooting a buck and then you can then you can retrace that in your mind and realize like oh man when we came in here five years ago shed hunting i learned how to get down this creek i realized that this is only knee deep water and i can come in here with a pair of hip boots and get up this thing and you overlook those little details like that at the time but when you are when after it's over and you really have time to kind of decompress and look at the hole you realize like those little details were incredibly important and things that most people don't know going into that. So like most folks didn't know to look over there where that buck was at, but 
you know, since you bumped him out of there now, you're like, you're glued to that spot because you're expecting that pattern to repeat itself. But yeah. what tripped me up on this big deer was all the, I've spent a lot of time, as you know, filming hunts on private land that is very unpressured. And those deer don't act the same way that public land pressured deer or private land pressured deer. I mean, it shouldn't matter. Public, private, it just pressure comes down is just to human pressure. pressure. Pressure's pressure. But like on a big chunk of private land where there's only one guy hunting and the deer are largely unpressured, they act different. Like they will walk down an access path during the daylight or they'll pop out on a little food plot, you know, next to a bedding area during the daylight and you can pattern them and you can kill them. Well, what happened to me was I, I don't have a lot of experience with self cams. Like I've used them a little bit. I'm, I love trail cameras and I like leaving them in a spot for an entire year and then going back through and being able to dissect when a, when bucks used it and figure out how they used it or what food sources they were using. Like I'll put it up over honey locust pods to see what type of time of year deer start feeding on them. Like I love them for that reason. But anyway, I was using these cell cameras for the first time this last fall and they really just messed my brain up because I got pictures of this buck on this access path and no people. So for like two weeks straight, there was not a person. And I'm like, man, if a person is going into this section of woods, they are walking that path. hundred percent. They're not coming in here any other way. They're going down that dang path. And then more and more bucks started showing up. This big buck started showing up, getting closer and closer to daylight. And then he's on there in daylight. And I'm thinking to myself, like from the days of filming guys on, you know, managed land where you can manage the pressure. It's like, just go in there and hunt him like that. Because he's going to walk right through there until I get pictures of somebody else walking down that path. He's going to come down that path because he hasn't got any pressure. That line of thinking obviously didn't work, but that's, that's what was going through my mind at the time was <coughs> when deer don't have pressure on them, they act much differently. But what I overlooked was the fact that these deer live in an area where there is pressure and they have encountered it before. And that, that changes their habits permanently in some ways, like their bedding habits. And I, all the stuff I've learned just went out the window and, you know, big Hank showed up. I think that's a good point though, Aaron. Cause like, I think, you know, I mean, there's a situation where you go in there and you sit there and you do kill that deer. Like, partially be been there day before he walks right by but i I mean you got to look at that and go even okay so that deer is acting like he kind of lives on unpressured ground partially because he's not getting pressured at that moment the difference there is you go in there and you make a mistake it's it's over his reaction to your mistake is not going to be the same as that reaction to those deer on that well-managed private land you know but it's still like a, a possibility, like you, you could still do it. But when you go and you find that situation, you second guess yourself and you're dealing with cell cameras and you're like, I don't know, should I, should I not? Like what I know about deer, this doesn't make sense. But then you go and you winter scout that for a year. And now you, you're like, I don't just have to go hunt him over that scrape on that access trail. Like now I can play this, like I'm hunting a public land buck, even though he's kind of acting like he's not getting a lot of pressure, I can play him better. And I know like that deer, okay, maybe he's daylighting here a little bit and he might be killable, but there's a staging area 200 yards away down below that bluff or that ridge point where he's really killable. 
Like you might, you might be able to observe him and see exactly what he does in person one night, move that 200 yards and kill him without ever bumping him or laying down a scent trail that he's going to. So like, there's, I mean, it's just like, but that's, that's part of the fun of it, right? Like it's, it's the reality that you sit there and you go, you know, like, I think a lot of people would be like, if Aaron Warburton encounters a big one on Iowa public land, he's probably going to have a pretty good plan pop into his head instantly. And you go, man, just depends on the situation. <laughs> Not man. so simple. No, nah, I mean, some of them just put themselves in terrible spots for them to live, but it doesn't, it doesn't happen like that very often. Like yeah. most of the time you have to find some little chink in the armor where you can get in there and exploit a weakness in their plan. Yeah. And what we've already found with that buck that we're talking about, is that not only him, but many of those bucks are betting, and you can probably guess it, within sight of that access trail. Yep. Yep. So I come walking down that access path to hunt where that camera is, and guess what? I don't see anything. Yep. You know why that is? It's because that thing is laying there 100 yards away where he can see the access path. Yep. Because people walk down it often, and that starts to make sense you know at this time of year when we're able to go in there and figure that out but now i'm thinking like after scouting in there some and i'm going back in there because i got two or three more ridges i want to scout in the next couple of days but after scouting that some i've already found ways to come in from the back door and get into those bedding areas potentially in the morning before daylight using a creek system that i had never been in before and I didn't go into this last year because I was afraid of bumping them out of there. So all of these things, I mean, sort of confirm what we're talking about. Like you, you just mentioned that example up there where you've got bucks that are monitoring pressure on public. And that's something we see all the freaking time. All the time. And I, I just, I, I did, I got caught up in that damn, in that trail camera and I just figured, oh, this is access path is nice and quiet. It's wet. Um, it just rained. I can be, I can move super slow and I can set up right on it. I can make hardly any noise. But what we noticed is like, we kept bumping deer as we were walking in and I'm like, why are they bedded right here on top of this thing? Like I'll see them bedded off the side of a parking lot or whatever in an area where you're not going to bump them when you walk in, but where they can watch you or they can slide out undetected. But yeah, that's what we've found already is the dang things are bedded off of this little point that's hundred and. 150 yards in the camera and they can see everything that's going on where that human human travel is at and all they got to do is bounce off the end of a ridge and you've got no idea they're there yeah. but that's so when you when you describe that scenario though i think a lot of people <coughs> would listen and they go okay well he's unkillable or they're unkillable if he's going to bed there and he's on to this access program and it's like that's why you winter scout because yeah. now now you go i do have a backdoor entrance like i can get through that through that creek or whatever or Instead of just that, you go, now I found another concentration, a sign or a secondary bedding ridge or something I can work. And so I can be actively hunting and figuring out these deer without just going, I have to take that risk that's too high because they're going to be bedded right there where they expect 90% of the hunters to come in. And you give yourself those secondary options. And I think, you know, especially when you talk about kind of getting crazy locked into a big deer like that and you're running those cell cameras and every time your phone dings you're like oh god is it him like you know you start to get into this mentality that it's like he's here and here's my spot and it's like that deer has a home range of a square mile so you go instead of you know like i i hate 
I love cameras. I don't like using cell cameras on public land hunts a lot of times because I know, I, you know, I might be working on old information, even if I'm getting cell camera pictures and it just, it's a different deal because of that. And it's like, I don't want to get locked into the idea that I hunt this deer here because that's where I got the picture of him. When that deer, he might be a half a mile away for half of his life. He might be in a more killable spot somewhere else, or he just might have, you know, three more holes in his routine that are so much better for you to exploit than that one. And if you don't winter scout and figure it out, if you're if you think you're only going to be given that information in the fall through cell cameras or hunting, it's not going to happen. You got you got to come in there with that knowledge of the land and the knowledge of the sign. Yeah, you're going to fail a lot. Um, that's that. What you just said there is is one of the most overlooked things, but the simplest things in bow hunting deer that people just do not think about, including myself in this particular instance. Um, like how do you get in and out of there without boogering them? But how do you get close enough to the area of interest? So, and, and also on top of that, how do you get in and out of there to understand what's going on in the area? Like, how do you read the sign in that particular area to understand what's going on? And when you start introducing those cameras into it, you just, your, your thinking gets deflected to that when all you got to do is just get back to basics. You just got to look like, okay, there's a really big, fresh track right here in this sandy dry Creek bed. And it's going both ways. There's one coming out and there's one going back in. There's a bunch of oaks up on that ridge and there's three or four fresh rubs I can see coming down off of them. And white oaks have been dropping at those elevations this year. So it's like, there could be a buck that's bedded up there. And if he's not, he's using this trail to come to and from somewhere here recently. Like just those little tidbits of sign are almost, they are more valuable than anything else or a fresh scrape with pee in it. That's right next to a thicket of high stem count cover. Yep. Like, okay, he might be home today. And that's all that matters. It's like, if he's home just today and he's not here for two weeks, if you guess that he's there today, you're in the chips. Yep. Well, if you see that sign and you're like, I'm going to put a camera over it, wait till he comes back. Well, then he comes back, you get a picture of him. Then you're like, okay, I'll hunt now. Well, he made, he's, he's making a loop through there. It's a rut loop in late October. He was there for a day and now he's not going to be back for seven more. Yeah. I think, I think that's one of the most, I I think that's one of the things we miss with cell cameras (laughs) a lot is yeah, you think, okay, it's going to show me there's a deer there now and I'm going to go in tomorrow and I'm going to kill him. But what it does is if it sends you that picture now and you've got it on that, you got that camera mounted over a scrape and it's October 8th and you've had, you know, random movement, midnight movement, whatever. And all of a sudden you have one evening where there's three bucks visit it in daylight and you go, oh, I should have been there today. It's like, you better pay attention to what the conditions were, like what was going on because next year. On October 8th, if it's a cold front or if it's whatever, like you even not even hunting that scrape, you might have your night to kill a buck because you have that information that it showed you. There's a reason here. Or like you said, there's a ramp up to that, you know, oh, he's getting there a little earlier, a little earlier, a little earlier. Like that's valuable deer intel way outside of just killing that specific deer. If you if you use it right, if you use it wrong, you go, well, that's just. I either go in there, I kill him now because it showed me or not, or like you're, you're kind of behind the eight ball. Like you said, there's so much more to it. And so I always, I like tell people, you know, we, we get so married to cameras. I'm like, man, if you want to run a cell camera on a scrape, you should, cause you will learn a lot 
It might not help you kill a deer on that scrape this season, but it might inform how you hunt scrapes for the rest of your life. Because you might yep. be sitting there and go, everybody else is going, it's the lull, I'm not going to go hunt. And you're like, well, I'm hunting public land. I don't want a bunch of people out there. It's a little warm, but it's October 12th. The moon's doing this or whatever. And all of a sudden you're like, last year, this week, I had five different good bucks come in in daylight and when I didn't think they should be there. That stuff's so important. Oh, yeah. No doubt. And just knowing the lay of the land like you talked about earlier, this is the time of the year when you can understand that stuff better than any other time. Oh, and for sure. that's, that's honestly how we killed me and Ted killed a, a mature buck during the uh, late season in a blizzard there a couple of weeks ago. Um, I think that was right after Christmas, but the reason we killed that thing. And I'm just, th- I'm just kind of remembering that as we're talking, the reason we killed that thing is because as a group, we have Intel from past year shed hunting and scouting this area. And it's, it's as simple as knowing the lay of the land. We knew that this particular area had a lot of really good south-facing thermal cover, like cedars and hedge and really thick stuff. It's all south-facing in hills. We had a blizzard come in after Christmas. It got down to negative nine with wind chills and 40 below. Like, you're you're more used to that than I am. I'm further <laughs> south than you. So that's like a real shock to the system for us. But it's getting down that cold, and we're sitting there looking at maps, thinking about where we're going to hunt. It's like pops into your head. We need to look for South facing stuff where deer are going to get out of the blizzard and get out of 40 below wind chills. So where's a place with North winds, where are some South facing stuff with heavy thermal cover? And we thought about this spot immediately. Like me and Ted each thought about it. He's like, I was thinking about this spot. I was like, I was just, I got it pulled up. I'm looking at it right now. He's like, that's the spot, man. We got to get in there. Like, heck yeah, let's go. We went in there, no no camera intel, no nothing all year. We just went in there based on the fact that we knew the lay of the land before, and we anticipated deer to react to those current conditions in the way that they did. And they were, boy, they were stacked in there. I mean, bucks on bucks on bucks just pushed in there because of that blizzard trying to escape those conditions. And would have never known that had we not had that prior intel of being in there and walking around. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer, and it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now, you probably know someone who's used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. 
Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. Lately, I've been telling you guys about land.com, the site that can help you find that little patch of ground to call your own where you can do all the hunting, fishing, hanging out with family you want. Land can be a great investment. Getting your own piece of land is something that can both generate income over time and also generate a lot of memories for generations to come. It's an investment you get to use and enjoy and take care of while it works for you. And any good investor will tell you to start investing sooner than later. Well, they've got hundreds of thousands of rural listings from all across America. Land.com can help you find properties for hunting, fishing, a lake house, a hobby farm, or if you just want to start a rental business slash family compound as a way to better secure future generations. Land.com will also help connect you with the right agent that specializes in rural real estate. So enough dreaming about it. Land.com is the place to find and invest in your open space. I want to talk about something when I saw you, I saw you make that, uh, that social post the other day about, um, or, you know, a little while ago about, uh, winter scouting and, and finding some rubs. And you made a point that I think is so important that we, we kind of overlook is, you know, you, you had a rub that was in a, like, I, I call it a turkey hunting woods. Like it's the ideal woods. You want to go put your, like, yeah, yeah. You, you put your back to a big Oak and you call on a gobbler through the woods and it's the best hunt ever. And that's like, that's what you want. But those woods, even though they're pretty and that's kind of what everybody wants for turkeys and, you know, like they, they like looking at it. When you have pressure deer, I just like in my experience, they do not. You, I don't kill them in that kind of woods ever. Like it's always a mature buck. No, I mean, it's just it's just not like you kill them in the, the the edge cover somewhere that's that's just thicker. And you you talked about stem count and you said you know, you look at this rub in the open, you go, or you open woods and you go, yeah, a big buck made it. This is, that's great. He lives somewhere around here. This is his neighborhood or whatever, but you don't kill him here. Cause this is probably a nocturnal, you know, he probably made it at night. And then you showed a place way thicker, you know, way different kind of habitat. You know, it looks like you would be jumping grouse or bunnies out of there and you go, that's where you're going to kill him. Maybe on, maybe not right in the middle of it, maybe right on the edge of it, but not out in that open woods. And I think, you know, I, I think I've been like guilty of not explaining this enough. Cause I've talked about this a lot, but like the, the, you know, scrape on the field edge, the, the rubs way out there, way out toward the field edge 
we always like take it for granted and go, okay, that's a nighttime sign. Who cares? You get into the woods and you go, there's a rub. That's good enough. I'm hunting here next year during the rut because that big rub is here and I found it in March and I got my plan. Then you go in there and if there is a deer around there, they all know you're in there because there's a bunch of oak leaves on the ground and they can see for, you know, from one end of the woods to the other and you don't kill them. But then after the season, you walk through that thick stuff like you're talking about, maybe you're rabbit hunting or you're just in there winter scouting and you go, well, there's a huge concentration of, you know, maybe smaller rubs in here because the cover is kind of a little bit different, but that's where he's killable. And I, I think people don't, I think a lot of people don't understand the difference between that because the sign looks good, but it's where it's at that makes it not so good. Uh, they know they're in danger during the day. Once they reach a certain age and they've encountered human pressure on private or public, they know that the day is when they're, when they're vulnerable, especially a big buck. Like they don't, in our part of the world, what do they got to worry about? Coyotes, for the most part, a healthy big buck. They just look at coyotes as they run by and like no big deal. Fawn's a different story, obviously. But big buck's got to worry about us. So he's going to go to wherever he feels safe during the day. And then uh, and then on top of that, wherever he can escape to even more safe areas. So in, in that high stem count cut or cover like that is exactly what you're, I mean, that's the stuff where he can bed in, and then when he hears somebody coming, he can stand up, or he hears something around that bedding area. Say it's a calm day, for example. He can stand up in there, and he can look out of it into all those open woods and see that danger coming, and you have no freaking clue he's there until he takes out of there like a rabbit out of a brush pile. It's just, and you can't shoot at him in there yep. because it's so thick. That's the that's the tricky part with cattail marshes, like what you're talking about is. Sometimes you might find where they're living in the middle of that cattail marsh, but how do you get an arrow through there? Like they realize that over the years. I don't, I mean, a, a buck probably doesn't think about it obviously in the way that we do, but they just know that they're not getting shot at. Their buddies aren't getting killed in that stuff. Dude. They, so advantages. I mean, you, you just got to oh, think God. about it. If you could hunt deer with a grenade or a mortar, I would be the best cattail <laughs> slew hunter. Cause I find those bastards all the time. And I'm like, well, unapproachable untouchable we, we, when you're talking archery hunting in some of those situations but when when you talk about that situation where that bucks he's either he's bedded right in that high stem count thick thick gnarly stuff or We're he's just moving through the edge of it yeah or yeah. staging in there and he's yeah. he's looking out from that if he's here something or he's got the wind in his favor which he's going to i always think about it in terms of like a big largemouth right like you think about a big largemouth bass they live in the shadows. Like if you've got a stump or a dock post or a piling or something, and just think about it. If you're if in the middle of the summer, if you're standing in your garage working and your neighbor walks by, you can look out and see them perfectly and they can barely see you moving around in there. Kind of like the like being in a ground blind for turkeys, you know, like if you do it right. And those right. deer in that situation, that advantage is so distinct because of their camo and their ability to like just hide and not move and watch and listen. And you're walking by looking into it and he's got every advantage because he's in the cover looking out. Like, I think we undersell that a lot of times, but they use that so much. Like it's like ingrained in them. Like it's genetic, you know, like even fawns do it. And when, it, when yeah. you get a buck that's five and a half years old and he's lived on public land or in pressure ground, he knows those tricks it's so much better than we could even imagine. Oh, yeah. And a lot of people think that they're nocturnal, but, I mean, you can talk to Bronson Strickland and those guys at 
you know, MSU Deer Lab. And they'll show you exactly where bucks move during the daylight, especially mature bucks, because they put radio collars on them and they monitor them nonstop. And they're and you ask them about mature bucks being nocturnal, even on heavily pressured land, they're like, no, there there's very few, if any. They they said they don't have a single one that they can say is nocturnal completely. Like I they mean, all move around somewhat during the day. They have to. I mean, how could it be possible that they were absolutely one hundred percent nocturnal? Like Right. <laughs> they they have to get up, they gotta they have like five feeding bouts in a day, even yeah. if that means they just stand up and walk two feet and browse a little bit. They're not just bedding and living in a hole in the ground. Um, and whenever they looked at, they looked at the habitats that those buck used, bucks used during the day only. And that was the consistent thing, man. Those pretty open woods with all that sign in there and acorns dropping and everything, that looks awesome. And those bucks are in there at night. They are almost never in there during the day in pressured land. Yep. You start getting in the cover that's, that's waist to chest high. And that's areas where they're going to start moving. Like down in the Southeast, in the examples they were showing me, it was like river cane. Yep. And it was just flat, wide open woods for as far as you could see. And then you walk up on a patch of acre, acre and a half of just chest high river cane. And it's not super thick, but it's just enough cover that a buck could bed in the edge of it and stand around and move around about that river cane and feel safe moving around it during the day. And then as soon as it gets dark, then they're off to wherever, yep. leaving sign all through the woods and, you know, tricking our brains nonstop. <laughs> well, and it, I mean, it, but this is, that's like to, to tie this together. So when you, <laughs> when you find a spot like that, or you, you know, you're out winter scouting and you find that open wood sign, maybe the scrape that you can see or whatever. And then you get to that cover. It's not enough to just find that cover. You got to wait in there look at those trails in there, look how they're getting in and how they're getting out. You know, you're going to find some rubs in there. You're going to find some beds probably, and then start thinking about, you know, what conditions does this work? Like, does he need to be there on September 15th when it opens or is there enough cover around where he could be somewhere else? But by October 15th, when the leaves have fallen and the pressure's gotten to him, not, now is he going to be there? Like what, what does it do for you? And that that's the beauty of this time of year is you can go wade into that stuff and go, you know, even if it is only an acre, how many trails are leading in there? How many trails leading out? Like how many different what are ways? the available food sources right there close by? Yep. Water. Um, and like those, those, those food sources may not be interesting right now in March. They may not be interesting in July, but towards the end of November or early December, they might be, or in early October, like what you're talking about, they might be. Yep. And They'll, they'll shift around the landscape using these different parts of it based on food and water and cover and pressure. All those different things are going into it. You know, there may be a, there may be a creek right there that's intermittent stream. And if there's no water in that thing, they may not bed there very often. But if there is water in it that particular year, they may be socked in there, especially if they have water right there. They got good cover, a lack of pressure, and they have multiple food sources leading out of both sides. Those are areas that where my brain starts firing, thinking like, okay, these are spots that bucks are going to use often yep. and they're going to use them, you know, every single year and multiple bucks will like that big one may be in there this year. And then there may be a different big one in there next year because all of these conditions line, but you're not going to learn all of that until you go in into those bedding areas and scout them from the inside out. And then especially getting in there and like seeing what the deer can see looking out of them because 
you're you're playing that scenario in your mind like okay this thing's standing up in the middle of this thicket and he's walking to the edge of it he's going to make it 100 yards during daylight what can he see in that 100 yards like what what is he alerted to and is there a way that i can use this little ditch over here to the left to get up here when the wind is when the day winds are blowing at noon and climb up in a tree to where i can kill him when he's 60 yards from that spot like you're you're just putting together so many little details like that when you're when you're finding those areas and scouting them from the inside out during this time of year that you're missing otherwise. Yeah, and and that's a really really important point about thinking, <laughs> not, it's not enough to just find it and go okay here's a place a big one spent a lot of time last year because if you don't take a look and figure out how to hunt it then it doesn't matter and I yeah you're missing your opportunity yeah at that point. I used to do that a lot where I would I would winter scout my ass off almost to the point where I would forget stuff. And then I'd be like, okay, I know there was like a good staging area I found here, but I'm like, you know, I never looked for a tree to set up in. I didn't look for the access or multiple access or something. And it was like, it was like, you only did like 25% of the work. Like, and Dude, it, it, I've done that exact thing so many times. And we should definitely mention that as a caveat here. If you guys are getting out there and doing this more often, especially this year, like don't overlook those little things because I have a tendency to do that. I definitely used to where I'd be like, okay, I got to scout 10 bedding areas today. I'm going to go this one, this one, this one, this one. You know, I got my coffee and my sandwich and we're just going to go. And then before you know it, you scouted them all and you definitely learned where some big bucks were living, like you said, but you didn't pick up those little bitty details that are going to help you kill him when he's in there. And that's so, that's so crucial. Like looking and seeing, can you get up the back of that tree without getting spotted? Or how do you get in and out of that area? Yeah, Not I, only walking every single one of those trails, but I mean, even tracking them on your map. Like Onyx has got that tracker thing. And we started doing that more where yeah. we'll start tracing I, those trails. And I used to over, I used to just drop a red pin on it. Yep. And then I'd leave. Oh, and then, man. and all that stuff's fresh on your mind then, but you're going to forget it. You come back in there in October and it's like, okay, I know this is a good spot, but. I don't really know like what the deer can see. So I don't know how close I can get without spooking them. And I don't really know how the wind behaves in here because I didn't check it. I didn't check any of that. And I don't really know which food sources they have available on the outskirts of this bed in here. I just know there's a bunch of bucks in here and that there were some beds in here. I know. (laughs) Then you got to go in and re-scout that thing like five different times before you finally get it figured out. But now, when I when you go in there, if, if you're super anal about really gathering all those details right now, it's just going to speed up that and and saving them in some way. Yeah, like journal, maps, phone, all that stuff. And don't drop a pin. Drop a pin and put notes under it that say specifics about what you're finding. Yeah, that not, way you remember it. Not only what you're finding, but you should hunt this in a northwest wind, or you, you yes. know what I mean, yeah. like. And yeah. that tracker feature, man, I started using that out west and just like uh, it changed everything. And now I use it for whitetails all the time. Like if I go in and, you know, I mean, not only not only like what we're talking about here with a winter scouting deal where you might find some badass sign. You're like, I got to hunt this and I want to know exactly how to get to this tree. But even going in like the buck I killed this year for uh, one week in November I walked in and hung a stand in the evening. This is on private land. And we had an okay hunt, saw a few deer, but it was like a brand new setup and I'm filming. So I'm like, we're making twice the amount of noise. 
and it was, you know, calm and just November conditions, whatever. And I, I ran my tracks on the way out, even though it's like a, you know, a hundred yard walk in the woods, but I'm like, I don't want to get off of this route by six feet. Cause I have two guys, you know, me and another guy who are going to be making a yep. ton of noise. And so even following like every little turn on that trail and just like the exact route I need to take to get there, it's just a game changer. And then you think about, you know, that's from one day to the next. Now you think about go out in March 10th and find your perfect tree on that river crossing way back in the woods. And you think you're going to go back there on October 25th and remember your exact route and take the no way. Like, especially if you used to drink like I did. I went in there with a pair of freaking hiking boots on to cross water and I got all the way in there and then I realized like this water's way steep. Yep. Like I, I'm going to have to take my pants off and my boots just to wait across this to get back in where I'd scouted. I mean, just minor details like that, but you're talking about killing them now. Like that's the difference between seeing them and killing them is having all of these things buttoned up because I mean, whenever we kill them, it's always like you're one step away from from not killing them or, you know, there's one limb that almost got you. Or a couple of years ago, I killed a buck that we bump and dump, you know, real close to the house. And that thing hit it. That arrow hits a limb like as soon as it's going into the deer and deflects and I killed him. But I never even saw that limb there. Had no idea because I'd never even been in those woods before. But that's my point. It's like you come when it comes down to actually killing these things, there are so many of those tiny little details in place and things that have to line up in order for, for this to happen for you. The more of that stuff you can put to bed ahead of time with your scouting, the more killing opportunities you're going to have. Not just the more encounters you're going to have, but the more killing opportunities you're going to have. Yeah. And you may not be able to like trim trees and whatnot on public land, but you can still climb up in them. You can climb up in it and see what you can see. I can't tell you how many times I've I've found sign in a new area and I've climbed up in a tree and then realized once I got up there, like, crap, this ain't going to work. Ugh. So then you shoot all the way down and then you move 10 yards and you do it again. And before you know it, you've spent four hours out there in the afternoon trying to find the right setup to hunt the edge of this bedding area. I've, when all of that could have been taken care of before. If I have a major chest grabber when I'm like 48, it'll be because I've done that to myself. <laughs> 5,000 times hung a stand and got up there or, you know, climbed up there to, to set your stand or saddle up and you look around and you go, Nope, no way. Can't shoot. Well, you want to walk out there and look back at the tree at what the deer's looking at, but you also don't nope. want to leave ground scent 360 yep. degrees around your spot. Yeah. So it's, it's hard. Yeah. That's and it, why if you do it this time of year, then you're just, you're, you're crossing those off of the list, man. Yeah. And, and I would say on that note, cause I did that, uh, for some of the stuff I hunted in Western Minnesota this year, you know, I scouted it before we went out there and, you know, I looked at trees and I go, that's my tree. And then when I get out there to set up, I actually walk up to that tree and I start looking like, where are we going to be? Like, where's, where's the camera guy going to be wearing And then you're like, man, it's super crooked. And it's actually not like <laughs> figure that's like, that is the stuff, like the details in the off season that make the difference. Like it's, it's all of that, like every little box you can check and go, this is actually a tree I can get in and be comfortable. And I'm, and I'm going to go 16 feet up and I'm going to hang off this side with my saddle or what, like know that stuff. Don't just go, Oh, there's a nice, you know, pine tree or whatever there. I'm going to just use like, Nope, not good enough. Like <laughs> you got to know it. And, and what I started to do 
especially when I'm laying tracks or I find a, you know, you talk about a spot like a high stem count spot in the middle of a mostly open woods. I started to do where I'm like, here's, here's where I think I'll kill. There's my pin. Here's my tracks. Here's where I'm going to observe. Like I'm in, and I think it's really hard, especially if you're traveling or you don't have very much time to sandbag a hunt and just go, I'm not, I'm not going to bonsai right in there to my best tree and, and sit like a lot of times because you don't know, right? Like you don't know how they're going to stage through there or you don't know, you know, if it's a two acre bedding area and he pops out here and not there or a 10, 20 acre bedding area. And it's like, are you, if you have that plan and go, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure where the X is, but if I can sneak in here and I know I won't get busted, I'm probably not going to kill one tonight, but I'm going to be able to look over that whole thing. Maybe see him stand up or maybe see somebody coming or going. And then tomorrow, if the conditions don't change, that's where I kill him. If you plan that stuff out too, where you're like, if, if I want to get in there, but the conditions aren't perfect or I'm not a hundred percent confident of it, I'm going to hang back a little bit, man. That's that has worked for me a lot, that's and it's killer. oh, dude, you're, it's so you're tight. Better off spending hunts doing that than you are diving in there and guessing on which one of the fifteen trails he's going to use coming out. It's either that, or you also develop a plan. If you can't see in, you develop a plan where you can scout the exterior of that area without boogering anything. So it's like if you can't observe in there, where can you simply scout those exits? Like how far follow those exits out of those bedding areas and get to a point where you can come across and cut that sign without boogering anything out of there. Like that's the stuff you can really use during the season to figure out if there's a buck in there or not. Yep. It's like we used that track example a while ago. You get 150 yards in that bedding area where that trail crosses a little sandy dry creek bed. And you can go walk that thing and see tracks coming and going up and down that. You know where that trail leads because you've done that scouting. Yeah, well, the, the other part of this is the attitude. Like, you, your confidence is going to go up so much when you have a plan to go into these spots. When you have a tree really nailed, like what you just talked about, and an access route in there, and you've been, you're just more familiar with it. Just, I, most people are uncomfortable. I'm not uncomfortable anymore with going in at 3 a.m. in the dark, completely blind to a spot because I've done it enough times. But at first, I certainly was. You know, but now if you've got that, if you have all that intel, you're going to be more apt to get in there and get in the right spot. You're not going to second guess yourself near as much because you know what's going on. And that's just going to, that's going to help you mentally during the season. And, and you know what that does for you that we never talk about? I've been writing about this quite a bit. It makes it more fun. Like, yeah. just think about, yeah. I mean, this is so dumb, but it's so true. If you go out and you fully expect to see deer, even if you blank, you're going to have a pretty fun hunt you, you, just because you're like, ah, it's going to happen. Like I'm going to see yeah. him. And it, I mean, that stuff happens a lot where you're like, <laughs> oh yeah, this is, this is going to happen. The conditions are right. I know this spot. I'm going to see one. Even when you, it, when you blank, it sucks, but whatever, it happens a lot, but at least the sit is like, you're not sitting there going, I have no confidence, which is no fun. And Man, there's like an intangible there where you watch people who are, we, we kind of think that everybody's like this term, like everybody who's a really good public land hunter specifically sort of has like a Terminator mentality where it's like, just get it done at all costs and sit all day long and just like, it's hard, man, dude, it sucks. But if you go out and you figure out a way to have fun, which is just building in like your knowledge and building up your confidence and going, listen, I know 
this fall, there's going to be a buck concentration here, or there's going to be a good one using this little, you know, creek bottom in the woods or something like, like there, there's just something about it that just makes the whole thing so much more enjoyable. Even if all the wheels fall off and it doesn't work out going into it is so, it's so much better. It's going to, and you just hunt smarter. You may, you I mean, the way you walk through the woods, the way you set up, when you have that belief that you've, like you built all this work into this already and you, you're like, he's going to be here. It's a total game changer on how you conduct yourself out there and how you feel about it. Oh yeah. I definitely would echo that. I mean, I've, and I've seen that personally with the way that I hunt. If I just go into it with that mindset, like I'm going to enjoy myself today and I'm going to learn something. It just pays off in the long run. Because if you just are constantly learning something about these areas, it's going to take care of itself downstream. Um, you're hunting with a bow and arrow. Like you can't just go out there. It's not like turkey hunting where you can just get mad at one, you know, and then just go, 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 go. And you're hearing them every day and you're getting tighter, you're getting tighter and you eventually kill one. It ain't like that with deer hunting. A lot of times it's a freaking marathon. It's a, it's a war of wills out there. And the more info that you have, and if that, if that's really your goal, your end goal isn't to kill a buck necessarily well i guess that's what your end goal is but your goals in the, your your smaller goals in the meantime is just how much can i learn today yep how much can i learn next weekend when i get to come back here and how can i take that information to sort of spin this web up of my strategy going in the next fall and if that's your mindset man when i'm when my brain is rolling like that i just always end up in better situations to kill bucks in the fall Big time. And when it, I don't get diverted on these these shell camera paths, <laughs> that's that's what happens. Um, and, and you know, you said that you know we're, we're bow hunting deer, but honestly, this is this is probably the most underrated aspect of being a successful gun hunter too. Like, you want to talk about winter scouting and finding sanctuaries? Like, there is no oh, yeah. time in a big buck's <laughs> life that he needs a sanctuary more than that gun season. So if you if you're sitting there and you're listening to this and you go up to the the cabin every year and you got your you know your hunting party and it's your uncles and your dad whoever and you're like you know I've been crossing my fingers every year sitting on the same ladder stand and hoping somebody comes down the logging road or the power line man you know I, I this is the the second best window to scout right after the gun season is probably the best window to go burn through everything and pay attention to where you jump them but when you go out there now and that woods is laid bare like you're talking about there warb and you find those thick areas and that high stem count stuff, that's where your bucks are going to go when 500,000 people walk into the woods with rifles. Like that's exactly, it's so valuable. Yeah. If you don't know it, you're SOL. Yep. So get out there. Big time. Right. We're, we're out of time, buddy. Uh, I always <laughs> just absolutely love talking to you. I'm pretty sure everybody who's who's listening to this knows where to find you guys, but why don't you let them know anyway? Uh, the Hunting Public. Just check it out on YouTube. YouTube. Have, you guys uh, don't have a social or anything? Yeah, we got Facebook, <laughs> Instagram, and we're on the TikTok too. I'm still figuring out what in the world that thing even is. But yeah. yeah. Yeah, every, everywhere you want to find some good hunting content, that's where you go. Thank you so much, man. I always love talking to you. You too, brother. Thanks. That's it for this week, folks. Be sure to tune in next week for more Whitetail Goodness. This has been the Wired to Hunt podcast, and I'm your guest host, Tony Peterson. 
As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you're looking for more whitetail content, be sure to check out TheMeatEater.com slash Wired. Again, that's TheMeatEater.com slash Wired. And you'll see a pile of new articles each week by myself, Mark, uh, Bo Martonic, Alex Gilstrom, a whole slew of whitetail killers. Or head over to the Wired to Hunt YouTube channel to view the weekly content we put up. You'll see all kinds of strategies and different stuff that might help you kill a buck this fall. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.